you rock up to Rajasthan Royals, there's a guy there with blonde hair and big smile, big shoulders and a, a charisma as, as big as a cricket field. My first job really was to work alongside the master and Warney got a sniff of this psychologist coming in. He thought coaches were the only thing that should drive you to the stadium, you know, that was his view. So he didn't really like the support staff. What I didn't realise is he'd booked out of his own money a flight back for me home after two days, just in case I started talking too many Freudian philosophies to him. It's a bit like me in India. I was so fixated on how much scrutiny I was going to get tomorrow in the press that I forgot to watch the ball that was coming in the next five seconds. And as a result, that self-fulfilling prophecy happened that I missed the ball. Where do you see performance psychology going in the next five to ten years? I think we'll see a lot more nuanced um, careers. So I think we'll see you get to the top level and it's 80% mental. Why have we only got one person doing it part-time? At the risk of asking a question, which is like, hey, Jeremy, you're a father. Who's your favourite kid? Out of all the interviews you've done, have you got a favourite? There's a really unique couple of people that I met that were in prison with Nelson Mandela for 26 years. They chose to go to prison to protect Nelson Mandela. Of the 120 people I've interviewed formally, high performers also have imposter syndrome. So take me back, you're there in Calcutta, 120,000 people. It's a cacophony of noise, it's an insult on your senses, isn't it? It's just constantly flares going off, noise, smells, it, it just, you're alive. So set a wicket, you're there, what are your biggest life lessons? Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. If I could go back to year 11 at high school when Mrs Singh, our career advisor, asked me, so Andrew, what do you want to be when you grow up? Knowing what I know now, my answer would probably be Jeremy Snape. Jeremy is one of the world's leading mental skills coaches who has worked with the following teams. The South African cricket team, Rajasthan Royals in the Indian Premier League, England Rugby Union, Premier League club Crystal Palace, Football League Managers Association, F1 Racing. He's also played cricket for England, even though he once referred to himself as the world's slowest bowler. We've got to talk about that. He played professional cricket for more than 16 years, including 10 caps for the English team. However, Jeremy's biggest lesson was learnt when he underperformed in front of 120,000 people. That's some audition. This was in India, in a one-day international, where he became a firm believer that failure is our most powerful teacher. Jeremy hosts a popular podcast named Inside the Mind of Champions, and he runs a successful consulting practice called Sporting Edge Digital. Jeremy Snape, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Thanks very much. It's, it's lovely to talk to you. Last time I spoke to you, I was asking you in a mentoring role. In fact, when I got the job at Parramatta Eels, a mutual friend of ours, Patrick Farhart, one of the world's leading physiotherapists, said, I'll connect you. Mayhem, mayhem, champion. I'll connect you with Snapey. And it was invaluable. So before we talk, Jeremy, I want to thank you on that because you gave me some frameworks working with athletes. And one of the examples, if you remember, was to get some highlights videos and put it to music. And to this day, some of those players at Parramatta, who I still work with, some have gone on to other teams and some of the boys are now work with at Manly, really use that as part of their pre-performance routine. So I want to honour you for helping me, guiding me, but really what I want to talk to today is about your skill set. Five rough areas as a framework, because you and I could talk for hours. Number one, I want to really tap into your background as an athlete. You've got that 
that traditional English humour, that condescending humour on yourself, but you did play professional cricket for 16 years and I want to tap into that. Two, how you transition to psychology and mental skills. Following the bouncing ball, I've got a few ideas, a few questions, but I want to pressure test those. Three is I really want to look at the mental skills methodology that you use because you are known as, not just in sport but in business, as one of the leading mental skills coaches in the world. So I want to pull on that thread. Four lessons learned. I look at the podcast you do and the guest list. It's unbelievable. What have you learned from that? Also, what has surprised you around high performance? And number five, we'll look at performance uncovered. 13 questions about your quirks, your idiosyncrasies that make you you. So that's a rough frame, but we'll dance around and get through this common thread of mental skills. So in the beginning, take me back. When you had hair, I would have had hair. We're a similar vintage. What was it like being a young Jeremy Snape and what was the future going to be for a young boy? Well, I think like most people, you know, you grow up in a fairly protected small environment. You know, there was no social media connecting you with the other ends of the earth and tribes beyond your, uh, you know, your local street or certainly your district. So I grew up in a small town in the middle of England, incredibly supportive parents, probably quite cautious. My brother is three years older. He went off to a, a private school. I was naturally assumed to follow his path. I sat the exam, passed my maths and English, and then failed the verbal reasoning, which was these very complicated questions like, you know, a train leaves Sydney at 10 a.m. It's traveling at 42 miles an hour. What's the driver's name? Uh, and it was these cryptic questions that I really hadn't got a clue about, and, and I failed that. So it was a huge moment of disgrace seeing that letter drop through the letterbox, you know, on a Saturday morning. It was meant to be you know, the form to to get my uh, uniform for this school to follow in my brother's footsteps. But in, in reality, it was actually a big red cross. So aged 11, that was a pretty big kick, I think. And, and that was probably a formative moment. But my brother and I were always playing in the garden, cricket. We'd got a, a my dad's best friend, actually, was a guy called David Steele, who played in the 70s for England and been, you know, play, played against Lillian Thompson with no thigh pad or helmet, you know, these sort of legendary heroic stories. Heroic, so sort like of, how many broken bones did he have? Yeah, no, he was good. Well, they had to watch the ball in those days because you've got no other option. So, so I grew up, you know, with a connection to cricket, but we were just playing on holiday, you know, and that got, you know, very competitive with my brother with timeless tests over the summer holidays, went to the local club, um, started playing there, local state school, no sport whatsoever. My brother was off playing cricket at his school. And then somebody saw me play a game from a local private school, a boarding school. And they said, how would you like to play cricket every day? And this was sort of some utopian dream for me. Uh, so I ended up getting a scholarship to a school called Denston College, which was like Hogwarts with amazing sports facilities. And um, ended up there as head boy aged 18, started pro as 16. And, and then I got onto that conveyor belt. The England, I played county sort of provincial cricket at 11, 12, 13, 14, captain England at 15. And I probably didn't realise at the time, I, I do looking back now, that I must have been one of the top two or three in the country at that age to have done that. But of course, my parents were very humble, sort of kept my feet on the ground. You probably won't get picked. You might not get in. You know, we're going on holiday if you don't get picked. So don't worry about it. Uh, and eventually I did get picked and I did sign pro. And then I was on that sort of accelerator into professional cricket. So yeah, that's the story. In your self-deprecating humour, you say that you are one of the, or if not the world's slowest bowler, but you must have done okay. It must have turned a little bit. It's not just about speed. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I actually was 
the fastest bowler in the England under 15s and under 17s. But then on my first day at Northants uh, with Alan Lamb and um, there was a, another trialist that day, um, another fast bowler sharing a ball with me and his name was Curtly Ambrose. And we both uh, got selected and started as pros. He stayed in the fast net. I was told politely at five for eight that I perhaps wasn't going to be quick and I should maybe try spin. But interestingly, I, I actually played in the England under 19 side as a spin bowler. And then that was my pro career, you know, batting at six, seven and, and bowling slow spin. But that that moon ball sort of slower ball stuff came in really at the back end when the 2020 started that everyone was really fearful that um, the spinners were just going to get smashed out of the ground. And that that was largely the case. But I was bowling one day in the nets to our county uh, guys at, at Leicestershire. And one of them, you know, classic cricket, you know, at the end of the net, somebody says, oh, can you, spinners, can you just throw me a few up so I can practice hitting my sixes? You know, why, why wouldn't we, you know, as slaves to their talent? Um, <laughs> and I thought, I'm not, I'm not having this. So I, I ran up really fast. Uh, let go of the ball really slowly, but then followed through and ended up right next to the batsman as almost like a Brett Lee follow through. And of course, this ball was still floating its way down like a meringue. And the batsman sort of missed it and said, no, don't bowl like that. Bowl properly. I can't hit that. And this little sort of light bulb went off in my head that actually what had happened is the decisions that we make as an instinctive cricketer come from the patterns that we've seen time after time after time. And if I disrupted that pattern, that the ball was meant to look as if it was coming quick, but it was slow, of course, they've got to hold their shape, hold their core to be able to get good contact. And I actually ended up not only getting a lot of wickets and embarrassing a lot of, you know, fast bowlers and, and big, strong batsmen, but, uh, you know, some hilarious stumpings and wickets along the way. So including Kevin Peterson being bowled through his legs, trying to switch it, but not quite getting his timing right and almost falling over. So it was um, it was a different tactic, and I guess taking the pace off the ball and, and using variation was more of a mind game than a skill mm. game. But of course, that was the thing that I was destined to do. What age was that when you started experimenting with that ball? Oh, that, that, that would have been towards the end. So I retired when I was thirty-five, so that would have been the last five or you know five or six years. Yeah, having a bit of fun. Yeah. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know, you probably hear this on so many other podcasts, and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. So before I tell you this story, I have a proud title that was given to me by cricketers in the New South Wales cricket team, then the Australian cricket team, as the worst cricketer as far as skill who's ever worked with the New South Wales or Australian cricket team. As a cricketer, I make a really good runner. Uh, I, I didn't play cricket much at all growing up. Though when I was with New South Wales, cricket were in the nets at Adelaide. He would have been at Adelaide Oval out the back. And Michael Slater had come back to the New South Wales team because he'd been struggling for runs in the Aussie team. They were in the nets and they were short of the bowler and Steve Rickson or Stumper said, oh, Maisie, why don't you come in with a few of your terrible darts? And I came and bowled one to Slats, cover drive it. I'd bowled another ball and I don't know how, but I got it to turn. And it came in inside leg and hit his stump. And he said, even that fucking idiot can get me out of here. <laughs> the biggest tantrum. I've still got that ball somewhere because I ended up getting him to slate it, <laughs> to sign it. Maisie, um, best slow bowler in the Adelaide net. So yeah, that's my... 
an ultimate cricket story. You've got a lot more than I do, but I do remember that moment. Maybe I was doing some Jeremy Snape there without even realising it because I, yeah. I would run in. You reckon I used to run in like Binger and I'd hit the pop increase and everything just felt like everything just went to the dogs from there. But 28 years of age is when you made your debut against Zimbabwe. So you played underage cricket for England. So there's a period there of almost a decade where you hadn't made that transition. So what I really want to know is why do you think you didn't step up straight away and and to the mindset that kept you there? Because I see this with a lot of young athletes, Jeremy, and I see this with a lot of young corporates. If they don't get in a consulting firm to be associate director and then director and partner within five, 10 years, they tap out. Or sometimes the athlete, the junior athlete doesn't go through the pathways and get where they want playing professional and they tap out. You didn't. So take me take me through those two questions. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess there is a similarity, although, you know, what I would say is there are far more partners in one consulting firm than there are people who play international cricket. So the, the opportunities are just so limited. So if I look at my phases between, say, 20 through to perhaps 30, you know, I, I was in a team at North Ants at 20 that had got nine international players. The lim- the opportunities were incredibly limited, and I was playing as a keen, good fielder, all-rounder if needed. So you play for a few years like that. Then I moved to Gloucestershire with John Bracewell. Ian Harvey was in that side. We then dominated one-day cricket for a period, won five trophies in three years, and I became a significant part of that team. I had my best season ever. That I scored four first-class centuries as well as getting wickets and and being a part of that sort of pressure cooker, winning those one day games. And that timing of my step up coincided with an opportunity in the England team where one of these 11 spots out of the whole country open up and and the timing is perfect. Now, if I'd have been a wicketkeeper at that time, that place, no matter how well I played, it wouldn't have opened because somebody like Alex Stewart was in the team. You know, if I was a number three or four batsman, Nasu same and Graham Thorpe, you're going to really struggle to knock those out. But but just the timing opened up. So I guess I, I was always a sort of decent competitive county cricket, but I think my strength was being an innovative strategist and team player and helping the teams to navigate and win. And, and that that was probably something that was in my CV that really helped me because I got picked for England because I was part of a really successful provincial county team. And that was an amazing opportunity. So to step up into the England side after my great season, I felt great. I felt really ready. But again, the reality of it is you expect when you see people playing for England that they're fit, strong, mentally focused, everything is in their prime. I'd actually twisted my, I'd torn the ligaments in my ankle, skidding into one of the boundary boards, playing Frisbee, of all things, a few weeks before in a warm-up. And as I got selected for England, David Graveney, the head of selectors, phoned me up in my flat. I got my foot in a plaster cast and I got this phone call saying, oh, brilliant, we're leaving 10 days, you've been picked for this tour of Zimbabwe. My first call was to the physio saying, you've got to saw this thing off and start getting some friction into my ankle. And then I phoned my mum to say, I've done it. Did you believe you were good enough at the international level? Because I, I look back, again, my, my experience, I got to the level in sport that I thought I could. I won multiple state championships and never went on at the national or international level. And I think I set a limit or a ceiling. Do you think you did that as well? Did you set a ceiling that you're a really good county player? 
I'd probably been conditioned over those 10 years to know I was a really good county player. And as I say, it's only when you get that opportunity that you see whether you're good enough. Now, our first tour was Zimbabwe. I got man of the match on my England debut. I got the Flower Brothers out. Yeah, and took you know, out the got flowers. Yeah. Yeah, Andy and Grant. It was all good. It? You know, it was all good. But then, you know, uh, no disrespect to the Flower Brothers and that Zim team, but they were a really outstanding county team, really. The big step up was, as you mentioned earlier, that tour to India. And the first game in Eden Gardens, Calcutta, was 120,000 people. So that felt like a very different experience. And and in all fairness, that was probably, you know, what international cricket is all about. I've read that that was one of the biggest life lessons. Now, Jeremy, as a leading global mental skills coach, you know this, I've learned some of this from you. You train the mental skills in a non-pressurized environment, and then you build them into practice and you build them into games. So take me back. You're there in Calcutta, 120,000 people. And for anyone who hasn't been to India and been to a cricket game, it's a cacophony of noise. It's an insult on your senses, isn't it? It's just constantly flares going off, noise, smells. It, it just You're alive. So set a wicket. You're there. One of your biggest life lessons. Yeah. And, and you talk about getting ready for the pressure. So I was playing at Gloucestershire at the time. We got an indoor school with a metal roof. And it was the middle of winter when we were going on this tour. So I actually got the keys to unlock this indoor training center. I was putting a little sort of beacon or cone down on the good line and length. And I was, you know, playing loud music. The rain and hail was hitting this roof, sounding like the crowd. And I was just trying to hit this, you know, perfect spot every ball. And I do it for hours and hours. I was on my own. It was dark outside. And that was my training for the pressure of bowling at Sachin Tendulkar. So when Nasser Hussain and they were, you know, 80 for non-off, you know, 10 overs or something, they were smacking it all over the place, him and Saywag. Nasser said, come on then, you know, Gloucestershire legend, let's see what you've got here. And I'll never forget that moment because that ball felt like a cannonball and it felt a completely different experience. But I'd been rehearsing a song in my head as I used my run-up and I took my mind off to my breathing and my song, and then the ball almost landed automatically on this sort of cone, and thankfully Sachin didn't hit the first one for six uh, and just had a look at it. But but So in the bowling, I was fine, but then in the batting, the run rate was going up. I walk out there, obviously, on my own to go and save the day for England or win the game, and all I did was run out Freddie Flintoff, who was the only chance we'd got of winning it. I was then left yes, in the middle just, of that. You just killed, noise. You killed Bambi. Basically. Killed the game. I killed, yeah, I killed the game. And that voice in my head was saying, what have you done? You know, the world's best media are sitting upstairs shredding you. Uh, they actually weren't. They were talking about the weather or something. But, you know, I thought you've, you're going to lose this game. You're never going to play for England again. You're never going to play county cricket again. Your wife's going to leave you. It's the end of the world. It's a shocker. You know, your head just spirals off into this uncontrollable mess. And of course, the next ball... I'm not even watching the next ball because I'm so much in my own head. Harbhajan Singh was hard enough to face with doozers and off spinners and top spinners. I wasn't even looking at any spinner. I was just trying to slog it into Delhi, which was a problem because we were playing in Calcutta at the time. So it was a big heave. I was out. And then I walked back to the pavilion and all the local school kids were chucking onion barges at me. And it was just a moment of, you know, massive shame. And I started thinking, well, that's not what we said on the flip chart. That wasn't part of the plan. You know, where's that all gone? And and it was that emotional hijack of not being able to control my own mind. 
So if I can't control my mind, I can't control my actions. If I can't control my actions, I can't deliver the game plan. And if I can't deliver the game plan, I can't win the game. So, so just that moment really taught me that I'd been spending 10, 15 years of throwdowns and talking about bowling at the top of off stump and all that sort of stuff. But actually, my biggest rival was in my head. And, and that's the bit I became fascinated about. So I started to do the studies and, and then I got onto a course doing a master's degree. And I wanted to really help people to be able to perform under massive pressure and deliver their best when they needed it, which is something that seemed to evade me because I didn't have access to either the mental skills or the resources or the perspective I needed because no one ever really spoke about pressure. You know, it was only till a few years later I saw Darren Goff in a in a pub at an event and he was saying, yeah, I didn't sleep either the night before that. And, you know, to the teams that talk about pressure are the ones that transcend it and navigate it. You know, so that's whenever I work with corporate groups or sports groups now, we've got to talk about how pressure affects us because it affects us all. It's part of our physiology. And when you talk about it, you can do something about it. So that's a great passion of mine, as you say. Jeremy, when I hear you say that, that that is exactly what we call a cognitive distortion or specifically catastrophizing. And I'm sure everyone listening to this has had examples of that in their own life. That's where we project into the future. It's driven by fear rather than driven by opportunity. And when I'm working with either corporate clients or I'm working with people in defense or I'm working with athletes, on catastrophizing, I'll go to the extreme. And the extreme is you're going to end up under a bridge, homeless and drinking your own urine. Now, don't unsubscribe. Of course, that's being totally, totally extreme. But when you often say that, Jeremy, I see the jolt or the slap where people go, what do you mean? Well, I'm just running with your story. That sounds terrible. You probably will end up homeless under a bridge drinking your own urine. But it's also a reality check. And it's so far-fetched, that story, that it can help pull you back into the now, back being present, and then we can work on some strategies to move forward. We teach what we're good at, and we can also teach what we stuff up, and, and they can become the same. If you went back to a young Jeremy Snape and had that opportunity again, knowing what you know now, if you could front load some of those cognitive skills, one, what skills would you teach yourself? Two, how do you think that may have played out differently? Well, I, I don't regret it because it was such a powerful moment that it actually changed the course of my professional life. So I, I wouldn't change it, actually. But what I would encourage other people to do is actually, as much as you're watching videos of the opposition, I would get you them to reflect on what could you, how can you get in your own way? And then talk about what will that feel like? Okay, your heart's starting to race, your vision's starting to spin around the pitch. You're starting to have in, having sort of negative, catastrophic thinking. Your brain's jumping too far forwards or going back to a previous failure. And that ability to stay in the moment with your breath, with feeling your feet on the ground, walking at half pace rather than three times the pace, like a bear in a cage. And, and it's it's just that ability to control yourself first. Then you've got a chance of controlling the game. And yeah, there's lots of techniques to do it, but sort of calmness, breathing. Often your physiology is the best way to control your mind. So by being very conscious of your breath, and slowing everything, slowing all mannerisms down, 
you start to slow your thinking down because your body basically says there's a a sort of a link back between your brain and your nervous system that sort of says, well, if you're breathing that slowly in the diaphragm, then there can't be a threat. So let's switch off the threat response. So that's why that works better than just thinking positively a lot of the time. Interesting you say you wouldn't change a thing. But if you had those skills, if you'd gone out there, you'd taken Pfeiffer, peeled off 50 or 60 with a you know, runner ball strike rate, and then played another four or five years, do you think that would have made a difference? Or was that such a learning and you're now so passionate about this that it was meant to be? Yeah, I mean, I did play for England after that. You know, if I'm being really honest, I think technically and mentally at, at that very top level, you know, I came to Australia, uh, first warm-up game, full of optimism, uh, you know, really keen to do well. Again, another great period with Gloucestershire winning games. So I felt in great form. First ball in Sydney, Brett Lee break my thumb in six places in front of my nose. So, you know, you have this adversity, you have these setbacks and you know, it's it's all part of life, really. Pretty pretty uh, relaxed and philosophical about it, I think. I had a corked thigh for 10 days. Again, Adelaide, million cricket stories in Adelaide don't go down well before an Australian one-dayer there against South Africa, bowling warm-up in front of the you know, the, the beautiful uh, notice board. They've done up Adelaide Oval, but they've still got the beautiful scoreboard. So we're there on the side and you've got all the yobbos on the hill. I've got the baseball mitt. And then just taking the uh, warm-up balls on Brett and he bowled one that skidded in, hit me on the inside of my leg. So maybe I had ice on and I was hobbling for 10 days. So my goodness, your finger when he's probably bowling another 30 kilometers an hour faster. Now let's just change channels a little bit because we've talked a lot about sport and a lot about cricket. And I just want to step back for anyone listening to this going, how is this going to help me? I don't play cricket or I don't play professional sport around the world. If you take out when you said stepping up pressure moments facing India or Brett Lay, for anyone who's listening to this who's a salesperson or anyone who's listening to this who's going for a job interview, or if you're trying to step up and really make a difference on your brand, on your message with your team, it's absolutely the same skills. And that's what you and I do, is take a lot of the learnings we've had in our different sports. And, and my story, as you know, is quite similar. I was good, not great. And I'll look back and see that I left a lot of potential on the track. It wasn't physical, it wasn't technical. It was my mind game. I got to the level I, I thought I could, it was a set point. But you do a lot of work with people now, performing artists. You do a lot of work with executives, seniors. Do you teach it the same way? Do you teach that that skill breakdown? Or what would you do with someone who's listening to this, who wants to get better at their craft in the corporate world as an entrepreneur? How would you go about using the skills you've learned to help that person? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're all human performers, aren't we? So whatever clothes or uniform or you know strip we've got on, we've all got that primitive wiring underneath, which is built for safety. So whether it's going in and having the physical threat of the military kind of environment or the, you know, the performance threat of being on stage uh, about to give a speech, or whether it's somebody in a meeting that's going to have a difficult conversation, our physiology will tell us to stay safe and avoid that situation. But high performers step into those nerves and still deliver. So I think the first thing is we've got two types of strategies. We've got things that we can try and control the environment. So what if scenarios, try and take away the threat and the novelty. So, well, what happens if the bus is late? What happens if we don't get as long to warm up? What happens if your back breaks? What happens if the laptop doesn't work? What happens if there's no Wi-Fi? 
what happens if they ask you this question? All of that is doing is giving you more simulation so that you can control the environment. And that control gives you confidence that you can then relax and deliver. The, the other type of strategies are much more intangible, and it's about trusting yourself to find the best way to win in that situation. So some of these things, there's nothing you can do anything about it. You know, yes, I've watched this bowler and I've watched the footage. Yes, I've thought about all these situations that could happen in this board meeting. But then sometimes things happen that are completely, you know, unpredictable and unknowable. So you've got to have this deep confidence that with my ethical, commercial, you know, experience that I will find the right thing to do in that moment and I don't need to panic so I can trust myself. So this one is trusting my process and the second one is trusting myself. And I think speaking very openly and honestly to sports groups or or executive groups about what it feels like to be under pressure and still choose the right path. That's what we need to do. We don't need to make out there's some, you know, mythical elite toolkit that if you haven't got this, you know, briefcase with these spanners and nuts and bolts in, you're never going to do it. It's self-awareness, it's self-management, and it's learning from each experience so that you can get closer to your potential under pressure every time. And, And I think that's the journey of life, really. I think we we tend to surround ourselves with promotions and fast cars and big houses and, you know, trophies. But to me, it's the satisfaction from having done the best you could do in a particular situation, because there's a lot of people very miserable in big houses. So, you know, enjoy where you are and, and do your best. That's saying we work and earn all this money that we don't need to live in houses with rooms we don't use, to drive cars with seats we don't occupy, to holiday homes that no one wants to go to, rather than actually thinking, what is it that brings me joy? What is it that brings me that 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 spark in life? Well, we're, we're just desperate to, in, you know, in a really transient, turbulent storm out there, we're desperate to be seen and to be seen as valuable. So we tend to you know, stick all these ornaments and, you know, badges onto us to try and make us look permanent and shiny. But, you know, the most confident people I've seen and the most resilient people I've seen, they're so flexible, they're so adaptable, they're so at ease with themselves, they don't really need anything to be themselves, you know, they don't need that job title, they don't need that car or that, you know, validation, they know deep down in themselves that they you know, they appreciate what they've got and they'll find a way to be happy and successful anyway, you know, to their definition, not societies. And I think, you know, we we get caught in that trap that we want to be relaxed and at ease and peaceful and calm. But there's this sort of gnawing, nagging voice to say, but you're not good enough compared to X. And I, and I think that's something that we can all try and, you know, let go of a little bit. And when we do, certainly brings more satisfaction. When that role identity, I am a insert, athlete, cricketer, banker, entrepreneur, when that becomes inextricably linked with your self-identity, that's where this can unravel in a real mess, right? But that separation between, yeah, I am a insert, but I'm also a father, a mother, I'm a family member, I'm a community member, I'm a musician, whatever else. It's so important. That is, I am so passionate about this topic with young athletes I work with. You are a much better athlete, plus you're going to be much more interesting when you do other activities outside. It's that myopic 
obsession with nothing else that sets people up for a big fall, right? Yeah. And I often think about it in a sort of financial sense, you know, would you put your life savings at whatever age group you are into the most volatile cryptocurrency there's ever been with no foundation? Because that's what you're doing if you put all your identity into one job. Because I've seen, I've been sacked, you know, from sports psych roles or whatever, because the manager's been sacked, you know, and, and I'm out of the door behind because I'm his support. So, you know, it's not in your control. So I think our, our financial advisors would say spread the risk, have some risky investments, but have loads that are diversified. And, and that's what we need to do with our identity. I'm a, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a son. You know, I, I mentor people, I'm an entrepreneur, I've got, you know, friends groups, I work with a charity, you know, these are my roles. So that's that's the broad sense. But I think we can also zoom down into the moment. So yes, I am a cricketer, but it's what am I currently doing? You know, I'm currently with family. So I'm doing, you know, family stuff right now, or I'm doing training right now, or I'm doing uh, a course right now to feature my, you know, skills. So it's about having your mind full. Mindfulness is your mind is full of what's in front of you and what you're doing. So if you can go from moment to moment, I'm on holiday now, I'm going to relax, I'm going to read my book, I'm not thinking about work. Can I do that longer? Or is my brain always taking me back to that place where I'm judged, where my performance identity is, and I'm back at work or I'm back on the rugby pitch? And, and that's the tension that even when we're not doing the performance identity our brain is in that mode and keeps taking us there and that's why we get frazzled and it's uh you know there's no downtime so yeah fascinating topic yeah a challenge for us all hi it's angela poon i'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture andrew and i have been working on together over the past five years we've been managing two separate businesses andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years delivering large-scale programs to our corporate clients, and we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our mental skills calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialize in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energized and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon. So watch this space. The United Kingdom has a minister for loneliness. The United Arab Emirates has a minister for happiness. They do the same thing. 
narrative is a classic, right? So I'm going to get out of that English look at uh, the Minister for Loneliness. Or yeah, I, I love the English. I love. I've got lots of English friends as well. I'm going to take more of an American approach to your CV because you just said I've been sacked from multiple roles. So I want to set this up as Jeremy. You've worked across multiple teams, multiple sports. I'll pick three and we'll double click and just. Talk about one or two things from each. Rajasthan Royals, Crystal Palace and England Rugby. Let's start with Rajasthan Royals. That's the early days of IPL, which has just gone on and totally transformed cricket. As we speak, the T20 American League is just starting as well. It's literally taking over America. You rock up to Rajasthan Royals. There's a guy there with blonde hair and big smile, big shoulders and a, a charisma as, as big as a cricket field. SK Warren. You did a lovely post when Warney passed away and those that worked with Warney as I was blessed to with the Aussie cricket team in 05 and 06. He left an indelible mark on everybody. Yeah, sure, there were some off-field antics and yeah, Warney was one of a kind, but he touched people and he moved people and added value. Tell us about your experience with Shane Warne. All of that, really. Yeah, I was I was very fortunate. You know, my first job really was to work alongside the master. And what I didn't realise is he'd booked out of his own money a flight back for me home after two days. So the Rajasthan Royals owner had, had asked me to go and sort of survey the team. I was part of a, a, a Leicestershire team that was winning all the 2020 leagues in the UK. I'd done my master's degree in psych. So I was well placed to go and do a bit of a you know, forensic was his 67 million US dollars investment up to much. Warney got a sniff of this psychologist coming in. He thought coaches were the only thing that should drive you to the stadium. You know, that was his view. So he didn't really like the support staff, apart from maybe physios and stuff. But um, so, yeah, he booked me a flight home just in case I started talking too many Freudian philosophies to him so he seriously booked a flight home for you yeah, out of his own got money a return flight home just in case i was <laughs> and i obviously didn't know this so i was chatting away with him we had a few dinners and a few you know beers and whatever and we had a great time he cancelled that flight i was meant to be there for 10 days i think i did my 10 days and then i was about to go and he said no you've got to stay for the rest and I was captain at Leicestershire at the time. So I had to tell Leicestershire I wasn't coming back to start the season. I was on this, you know, adventure in India with the legends. And, uh, you know, we had a great time. We made our team culture a competitive advantage. Everyone else was talking about the price tag of individuals. And we were talking about how do we get this team to bond? And that became our edge. And we won all 10 games at home, got through to the final and won it. It was a fairy tale. We were the cheapest team. And the blonde bombshell, as you say, was mercurial. He was so inspirational and made every one of the players, especially the young Indian players, feel 10 feet tall. And, and they played like that. And it was just an absolute joy to be part of it. And, and that was Warney. You'd be with him. I can remember being on a, on a tour bus in the Ashes 05 and we're going from Lakes District back to, to London. And he was talking to Errol Olcott, the physio and I, and he had a couple of different mobile phones. He had his England one, he had his Aussie one, and his England one was going off. And he picked it up and he said, oh, excuse me, Maisie, excuse me, Huda. Did you ever uh, do any work with Errol Olcott, Huda, the wonderful know, physio? Yeah, yeah. And he said, excuse me, boys. And he goes, yeah, Elton, yeah. How how he mate? Yeah, how are the kids? It was Elton John, and he gets back on, and he just talks to us like it's normal. And who goes? But who the fuck was that? He goes, Oh no more. He goes, Elton. So, and he said, I'll get you four tickets. So Elton's ringing him to get specialized tickets to go and and watch the fifth test. That was him. Uh, unbelievable yeah. the connectivity. We're out one night, sitting in this group, and Mickey Rourke rocks up, Paula Abdul, just like all on a first name basis. He just lived a life like no other in sport. 
yeah absolute legend but so down to earth as well you know one of the um players in our in our Rajasthan team we'd got a few days off in Goa and Warney was really keen to go and go to this guy's family house a really humble you know house the grand cooked some local food and you can imagine Warney sitting in this tiny little village house and the whole village went completely bananas that that this guy had sort of come in and and just incredible things that he did behind the scenes that no one would really know about you know driving you know he'd been in touch with somebody uh, in Melbourne whose son was really ill he was really struggling he'd flown back from the ashes was heading home got a call that this young boy was sick and got straight from the airport to go and see this boy in the hospital no press no one knew you know he, he he really if he was connected with you and you were part of that sort of inner circle it, it was incredible and um yeah sadly missed you know I was very lucky actually I, I've interviewed him a few times for our content and I found an interview that I did with him the week before we won the IPL and it's just three beautiful life strategies from Warner you know about being resilient and finding a way and in, through the adversity and and that's still, you know, one of our most popular podcast episodes because I think people just resonate with it so much. I bet each of those three examples, you could find a construct or multiple psychological constructs to back it. Now, Warney never studied psychology. He studied humans. He just worked it out, didn't he? He had that that amazing ability just to, to look at people, lean in and understand human nature. When you talk about him, you light up. You read like your, you, your whole face, you come alive. Yeah, he was, he was very special. You know, I spent a bit of time with him personally. There's some sections in his book about, you know, the work that I did with him. He was sort of in a bit of a tough period and he came over to London and, and we did a bit of sort of inner work with him about how he wanted to be remembered. And and actually, you know, that was six years, I think, before he died, seven years. But but that exercise, I think, you know, helped him to see how loved he was and, and how much difference he could make. But I don't, you know, I half expected him to come out in that Melbourne stadium when there was the, you know, the, the I don't know, the, the celebration of his life. It was just the most special evening ever. Yeah, sadly missed, especially during this Ashes series. I mean, he would have absolutely loved it. Mm. So from Shane Warne to Eddie Jones, Shane's channels, you work with Eddie Jones in the English rugby union team. You had 18 wins in a row, I believe, at that stage. So a lot of success. Uh, I hear a lot of stories about Eddie, and he's back now with Australia. He phenomenal success, a massive work ethic with Eddie. What was your experience like working with Eddie? Yeah, again, fascinating. I, I'd worked a lot with with cricket, so I'd worked with Sri Lanka, South Africa, Rajasthan. You know, the the sort of England setup as well. So I'd seen elite cricket, and that was generally about calming people down. And then, of course, you've got the, you know six foot nine uh second row forwards that you've got to you know catapult red meat to in the car park because they're tearing each other to shreds as the warm-up so completely different sort of level of arousal for the forwards again compared to the backs and that was a really interesting dynamic to keep them simmering without boiling over so people like joe marler um would be a would be an example there but eddie was remarkable i mean certainly the best coach i'd seen at that time a real professor of the game so he'd got that real deep expertise and it almost like a t-shape of a leader he could sort of swing across any of the different ologists you know physiology medical strength and conditioning nutritionist he could swing across any of these the the scrum the line out the you know defense coach 
and then he could zoom down the the sort of vertical and go into the forensic detail about how many grams of protein somebody was eating or about you know the wrist position of somebody's you know grip in the scrum and how that was changing their elbow and how that fulcrum wasn't giving enough power and stuff so relentless ambitious forensic it's intense under eddie and i think he was an incredible turnaround coach for england because they'd lost their confidence they'd been knocked out of the world cup so to completely transform that mindset and culture to win 18 games in a row was remarkable and and that's the bit that i saw and then you know like many things he probably got bored with me and wanted to change and he's changed lots of his support staff through that through his time so so that was the snapshot that I got over those 18 months, but certainly a fascinating experience. And the third one, Crystal Palace. So three very different sports. And again, for the entrepreneur, the leader listening to this, what, what has this got to do? Well, if you change and you go from a consulting firm to a bank or you go from a bank to a telco, there's nuances, like there's basics around communication, right? Around sales, around the way you run your diary, but then there's nuances. So between those three sports from cricket, which you knew because you played, and it is, I often laugh as well, you know, cricket before a five-day test match. Come on, let's go out and kill it. Ah, oh, we've got five days whereas before a game of AFL or rugby union mm. or rugby league you've got 80 or 100 minutes depending on AFL where you've got to really fire up and then drop down and mm. then you've gone to 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 football so what did you learn there crystal or crystal palace as it's correctly pronounced yeah well again they had a great run they got through to the FA Cup final and got beaten by Man United uh, in that game at Wembley so I had the amazing experience one weekend I was at Twickenham uh, with a packed crowd there. And then the next Saturday, I was at the FA Cup final in the dugout there. So it was great, great experiences to learn. But I think the biggest difference in cricket and rugby was that the coaches, because of the sort of technicality of the game, they, they empowered the players to almost come up with the solutions. And this is much more the modern business way. Whereas I think the the football environment that I've seen has, and it's moving now, but, it, but at that time, very command and control, you know, the, the, the manager, the gaffer knows everything. They know the plan. They tell you the plan and you have to be compliant to the plan. There was very little thinking and sort of entrepreneurial creativity left to the players. They were told how to execute, which is fine, of course, until you meet the opposition's plan. And it may be different to what you've set up for. So you that's why you see all the players looking back at the managers and their, you know, histrionics at the side. They're the center of attention now. You know, there is more of a shift now to getting the players to talk and to, um, you know, own the strategy a bit themselves. But that was the biggest shift, I think. But, you know, again, the dynamic, these young guys, early 20s, multimillionaires, absolute superstars. I think there's a lot of fear around football. This cadence of being a hero or a villain every Saturday makes its mark because everything is about what do we need to do today this week to to survive this week or to get the points this week it's rarely about how do we build this culture over a year two years three years because the managers don't often get that time but of course if all you're doing is being binary and directive and you know forcing it until the next saturday and then guess what on the monday you start forcing it to the next saturday and the next saturday your culture actually becomes quite staccato and quite directive and and as a result, you struggle to nurture those longer term environments that that you need. So fascinating experience and um, yeah, really, you know, great learning experiences for me. 
The guys like you were really the pioneers. We go back 10, 15, 20 years ago in sports psychology where we're seen as something different because we say in, in elite performance, there's three domains you can train. It's the craft, so the sport you play. There is the body, strength and conditioning, and then there's the brain. In an article in The Guardian, you say the following, recent developments in functional MRI, which is magnetic resonance imaging, scanning and neuroscience show that our self-talk isn't just an invisible, meaningless cloud. It actually creates connections and structures in the brain, which if, in re- which if reinforced repeatedly, create a kind of broadband connection between thought and success or failure. We therefore have a responsibility to ensure that our thinking habits are as healthy as possible. Learning concentration routines are a key skill, which athletes use to insulate themselves away from the crowd, the prize money, or the opposition fans, and stay focused on their game. Yep. <laughs> All true. The media get us to buy tickets and tune into the TV based on emotion about seeing a villain, seeing a hero. Will somebody break the record? Will somebody, you know, win this title? Will they Will they break the world record? Will they be the fastest man ever or the fastest woman ever? These are the emotional outcomes that, that draw us in as fans. But as players, we can't fall for that because an amazing test win comes from five days of resilient patience and commitment and one innings you know where you might score 400 or 500 comes from a couple of people getting a hundred and a hundred comes from batting the whole day and you know navigating periods where the other team are dominant and you you know absorb the pressure and then you dominate in the afternoon when the ball's older and the wicket's flat so we have to focus on the time between balls to set ourselves up to refresh our focus to refresh our discipline to refresh our commitment to those brilliant basics and then the headlines take care of themselves but the problem is a bit like me in india i was so fixated on how much scrutiny i was going to get tomorrow in the press that i forgot to watch the ball that was coming in the next five seconds and as a result that self-fulfilling prophecy happened that i missed the ball got the headlines and face the consequences where you know we the only thing we can control is our thinking and our behavior in the next moment and if we can live our life like that like we're sort of driving in the dark and we only look at the bit where our car headlights are lighting up that's what we need to do but we're we're often so worried about the long-term winning and losing that it contaminates our daily habits and and that's the problem where do you see performance psychology, so not sports psychology, but performance will go multiple domains, so performing arts, entertainment, media, sport, business. Where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years? Because you've been at the coal face. You've, you've, you've played yeah. sport at the international level. You've studied ex-phys was your first degree. And I think that's a really good base, understanding yeah. the body, because how our body responds, we're not a head on a stick. It's brain, body, mm-hmm. body, brain. Then you've been in the craft, you in the business world. So you're really there at the front end. Where do you see this going in five to 10 years? Well, I think our awareness and our talk, you know, ability to talk about mindset, psychology, emotions is ramping up significantly. I think at the moment we tend to talk about people's elite performance as if they do something completely different and mental health we use as a broad brush, but it's actually what we mean is depression and suicidal tendencies. When we say mental health, that's what we mean, burnout, depression, suicidal. But that's actually at the far end of the continuum. So at one end, we've got people who need 
clinical, chemical, medical intervention to keep them alive and keep them well. At the other end of the spectrum, we've got people doing some incredibly basic psychological skills, but doing it with absolute, you know, bulletproof, you know, habits and, and routine. And then in the middle, we've got these transient groups of people, which is 80% of the population that are sort of, we have some good days and we have some bad days, but we don't really understand why. And I think we will see a massive shift in that bell curve, 10%, 15%, 20% up towards the more performance end of it, because we'll learn that what we think and what we say to ourselves has a consequence. And we'll learn this and we should learn it in schools. So I think there will be a shift that way and coaching courses will educate people more that way. That's a start. That's a baseline. And then I think specifically in the high performance environment, you mentioned England rugby. I worked with England rugby and there must have been eight to 10 pretty much full time specialists working on the physical side. So doctors, strength and conditioning, physios, rehab, um, you know, nutrition, all of that element. And then I'm part-time consultant coming in a day a week, just in case anyone's got any problems, you know, so it's not necessarily a proactive part of the solution. And I think what will happen in the future is that psychology and counseling and coaching is a very personal intervention. So yes, there are these mental skills, but if they're delivered by somebody that you just don't have any relationship with, they may as well not have any mental skills. 80% of the therapeutic intervention is you as a person. Does this person care about me? Does this person understand me? Can this person help me? Will they help me get through this tangle? And this is exactly the same for a coach, a psychologist, a manager in business, or a CEO. Do they genuinely care for my best interests? And if they do, they can unlock the toolkit. If they're an absolute muppet, keep your toolkit in your bag and drive out of the stadium. So that's the first thing. We need to be more empathic and understanding of people. So that counselling type training, I think, is, is great. And then I think we'll see a lot more nuanced um, careers. So I think we'll see mental health psychologists or psychiatrists within a sports environment. I think we'll see injury rehab psychologists in a sporting environment. Yes, you've got to go and see the physio 30 times on your knee operation, but who's looking at the mindset side of it because that's critical to your recovery as well. How will you get your confidence back to get into those tackles and run at that pace or jump over those things again explosively when your knee's been reconstructed? That's psychological as much as physical. Then we'll have things like skills coaches, like kicking coaches and visualization and that kind of thing. Then we'll have transition coaches looking at how does an athlete, you know, develop broader skills while they're in that, you know, furnace of expectation and still come out and have a balanced life with a family and a second career age 30. Um, you know, so there'll be all and then there'll be a coaching psychologist that's working on the communication and learning environment with the coaching staff. So all of a sudden, there, I can't remember how many I said, but probably six different types of psychological support for an elite team. Because if you get to the top level and it's 80% mental, why have we only got one person doing it part time just in case anyone happens to be walking down the corridor while they're feeling low? 
I'm nodding profusely. We could talk for 30 or 40 minutes and unpack each of those. And I know you've got some meetings and work to go to. I'll just summarize three points on that. First of all, hallelujah, Jeremy Snape. I am so aligned. We need to teach these skills at school. I remember some mathematical formulas that I never use. Like if you need me to fill up a, a tank, uh, volume equals four thirds pi r cubed, just imprinted in my brain. Tell me the radius, I'll help you fill up a tank. That didn't help me navigate when I went through a marriage breakdown coming from an Irish Catholic background. So those schools, those skills at school, absolutely foundation. Two is, is I love when you're talking about this as skills development and not just the science behind it because skill is communication. I think a lot of people in the world of coaching development now think they need more degrees. And I absolutely say, like you, you get a lot of young people with a lot more hair than us uh, come up and say, hey, I want to work with sporting teams. What should I do? What degrees? Get a degree as a base, but go work with people. Do lots of different areas, different skills. And the third part is I love that that frame. Mental health is not mental illness. Mental health is a massive umbrella. From one side, you do have mental illness and anxiety and depression right through to flourishing. With COVID, we focus so much. The narrative was mental health is about struggling. It's not. So I love that shift 10 or 15% towards flourishing rather than mental health as far as struggling. No doubt. That's the future. Yeah. Now, your podcast, you interview rock stars, literally, of sport, of business, of entertainment. Let me just go through some of the people you have interviewed. Sir Viv Richards, Stuart Broad, Baroness Sue Campbell, Eddie Jones, Gareth Southgate, Boris Boom Boom Becker, Sir Ian McGeehan, Owen Eastwood. What a legend Owen is. Love his book, Belonging. Dame Sarah Story, Paul McGinley, Shane Warne, Dr. Kate Hayes, Amy Williams. The list goes on and on and on. You've done multiple interviews with, like, household names, scientists, domain experts. Two questions. Number one, is there a commonality when you step back and look at the interviews you've done? Is there a thread there that all high performers do or in, in, in a range that they do? I think they've all got something inside them that drives them through adversity. I think that's, that's you know, whichever domain it is, they've all got that ability to stay motivated because they want to or have to achieve that's the fire in the belly uh, and if they haven't got it from time to time they find it by sort of falling out with somebody or trying to prove somebody wrong you know fear of failure all of those things are part of that motivational mix i think they all recognize that their mindset can be a, either an enabler or a massive barrier to their performance so they are aware of that and the third thing is that they would be lifelong learners. Their curiosity to find out what's next outweighs their fear of making mistakes because they just know they've got to get better. And, and I often say that, you know, if you look at somebody who's played international sport or been at the top of their career in business even for 10 years, you've seen 10 different performers. You're not seeing the same performer 10 years older. Because by definition, the opposition are limiting your strengths and exposing your weaknesses. And because of that, you've got to get into that sort of blue ocean, uh, you know, strategy idea of into the clean water in, away from the competition and find a new niche to be successful in. So I think that growth mindset, that adaptability, that courage to keep going and learning about yourself becomes more of a drug than the achievements. And that's why you see somebody like Federer or Nadal 
they're actually competing with themselves and trying to get closer to their potential rather than trying to, you know, necessarily beat somebody else that's standing at the other end of the court. At the risk of asking a question, which is like, hey, Jeremy, you're a father. Who's your favourite kid? No parent ever answers that unless the kid's there and they say it's a favourite when they're with you. That as a frame, out of all the interviews you've done, have you got a favourite one or two? Or are there one or two that really stand out? So anyone listening to this podcast who's going to jump on and listen to your interviews, is there one or two they should start with? Uh, well, I tend to, to make a combination. So I guess what's different about my show is I've I've interviewed 120 people each for an hour and I've created a digital library of all the video insights. And that's what most companies use to use in their sort of business meetings and things. So you can start um, you know, a, a business meeting on Zoom or Teams with a famous professor or a sports star or whatever to talk about trust or culture or goals or whatever it might be. So that's that sporting edge. But as part of building the podcast, I, I actually create episodes where, so the, the recent one, for example, talking about risk to grow, it's about how do we understand risk taking and how do we take the right level of risk? So I've interviewed neuroscientists about you know, hubris and taking too much risk and failure. I've talked to people, coaches, about how they encourage their teams to take risks, business leaders, decision-making experts. So there's a, the podcast has sort of a medley of different perspectives that that give you a, hopefully a stimulus. So that that's more the approach, but I've done some episodes where it's a deep dive into a person. And there's a really unique couple of people that I met that were in prison with Nelson Mandela for 26 years. So I met them as part of the time I was working with the South African cricket team because we wanted to talk about purpose and resilience as key drivers of organizational culture. So I think it's early on, it's perhaps in the first 20 episodes, and it was during lockdown. So I interviewed a lady that prepares the astronauts for the space station, and I interviewed these two guys that were in prison with Nelson Mandela, Ahmed Katrada and Dennis Goldberg. And they it, the the podcast is called Mandela to Mars Lessons from Isolation. And it's basically a fascinating look at how do you stay on your own or how do you prepare yourself to be a, a sort of, um, you know, navigate uncertainty and adversity. And, and those, because both of those guys have passed away, you know, since that episode was done and I've spoken to their families and they're very happy for me to, you know, keep spreading the word about their legacy because, yes, we can win a gold medal. But I mean, those guys did not have to go to prison, which is what a lot of people didn't know. Uh, they chose to go to prison to protect Nelson Mandela. And they did it for 26 years. They never saw pictures of the family. They never told any secrets against their teammates, the other eight of them, because they knew that if they did, the guards would have a, a crack in their armor and, and they'd be able to blackmail them and manipulate the team apart. So when people talk about high performing teams, I often think that, you know, group that chose to go to prison to protect their leader on Robin Island, the shark infested, you know, island off Cape Town. Incredible story. So yeah, there's been some remarkable people to interview. Viv Richard said he actually wasn't so calm and it, his swagger was false. Uh, and he actually fell down the steps on his way out to his first test innings because his legs were shaking. So I think once you hear the he you know the human story behind some of these legends, you start to realize, well, actually maybe these mental skills are something that we all need to master rather than saying that oh they're different, they got fast twitch fibers or they've got a great hand-eye coordination. They're human performers. They've got human frailties and they've managed to 
learn strategies and techniques, some of them self-taught, some of them from the textbooks that help them to be their best self under pressure. I think that's a, you know, a great way to be. Wizard, we'll make sure we put that link to uh, Mandela to Mars in the show notes so people can find that easily as well. So they're the commonalities or there's some great stories we can listen to. What's thrown you? What have you learnt or what messages have really challenged your original thinking around performance? Well, there was an incredible leader in, in British sport and European sport is Sir Dave Brailsford. So Dave is was the head of GB Cycling and is now the head of Team Sky, which became Team Ineos in the Tour de France. Serial winner, you know, incredible environment. And, and one of his insights actually says that if all we do is talk about winning, that's very detrimental because actually you start fearing failure and fearing all the emotional consequences of not winning. So actually they talk much more about the process, the building blocks, the habits, the behaviors, and make those gold medal choices each day. And that will aggregate to be, you know, a gold medal rather than just saying we've got to win, but then doing nothing about it because you're so petrified. And when I do consulting with corporates around the world, that that's probably one of the key fundamentals We've got such a pressure to deliver an outcome, a PL, if you like. And salespeople will relate to this that all you think about is that number. You know, I worked with a company, a software company that are based in the US, but this is the UK division. And they were right on target for their annual sales target. And then the exchange rate shifted by about nine to 10%. And now they're way short of it. You know, and, and all of a sudden they're demoralized, yet they've had a brilliant year. So some of these external factors are out of our control. So all we can do is focus on those brilliant basics. So so that would be one. And then I guess the other thing, which is partly my fascination for getting into this area, is that behind every human story of the 120 people I've interviewed formally, and God knows, you know, 500 or 1,000 other people I've chatted to, you know, in, in uh, various functions and social settings, these high performers also have imposter syndrome, or they also have these insecurities. They're no, no matter how good they are, they still think there's a, you know, a gap, or they're not quite good enough in some area. But instead of letting that debilitate them, they use that as fuel to to get through what they need to get through. So, yeah, I think anyone that's sort of deciding not to do something because they feel scared or they feel like it's not going to be good enough. Well, that's what the champions think, but they go on and do it anyway. So I think that's probably good encouragement for us all. Jeremy Snape, this is the time of the interview we call Performance Uncovered. 13 questions. I'm going to hit you with a question. You just respond the first thought that comes to mind. Question number one, what is your favourite movie? Goodwill Hunting. Do you like apples? Yeah. yeah. Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? Great movie. Number two, what song do you know all the lyrics to? Well, after my time with Gloucestershire, we are the champions. Oh, we're going to do that in this backing soundtrack, Wizard. Number three, what food can't you get enough of? Steak. Question number four, what book has had the biggest impact on your life? Um, there's a good book I read actually last year. It's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century from Yuval Noah Harari. And it's quite deep, but it's talking about all these geopolitical and technology, how it's all interacting and shaping the way we uh, experience life. And it's a much bigger picture than we often read. So I really enjoyed that. Five, what is your most meaningful possession? 
Ooh, I don't know if the dog would be a possession, but I'd dash back in if the house is on fire. But also, when a few years ago, um, the ECB organised a dinner for all the uh, living in England players. We got presented with a sort of ceremonial cap, and um, there's a sort of an image with everybody's name that's ever played for England in tiny writing, uh, along with your, your sort of plane number. So that's something I'm incredibly proud of. What's your dog's name and what sort of dog? Well, my surname is Snape, so his name is Severus Snape uh, from the Harry Potter film. Uh, we call him Sevi, and he's a Hungarian Vishla, uh, very active, like a, a pointer sort of, yeah, gun you dog. Got the, you got the wizard very amused. Question number six, what does your weekly fitness routine look like? Well, Sevi takes me out every morning at seven for a dash around the farm behind, so we have a bit of a run and a few weights, and then at weekends probably a longer run i tend to do a sort of eight to ten miles but it would be i call it jogging jogging a bit and walking a bit uh and if there's a you know nice sight or a bit of a you know lambs have been born then i'll stop at a gate and get my breath back and any excuse to stop but i just like getting out of the house to clear my head for a couple of hours and that's a nice thing to do at the weekend question seven what is your favorite failure favorite failure Anything that I learned from the most powerful being Eden Gardens. Question number eight, what do you do to recharge or how do you switch off? Uh, gardening, nature. Um, yeah, I really like. There's something about gardening that uh, you've got to be quite optimistic because you're planting something under the ground and trying to visualise what will happen next year. So I quite like that uh, longer timeline and optimism. Question nine, we've spoken a lot today about sports psychology and mental skills, but if you had one tip that you use to prepare for a key performance moment, so a big presentation, a big media interview, uh, a big sporting franchise is saying, Snapey, come in and turn us around, what do you do leading up to that key performance moment? Just have honest conversations about what you're worried about. Because if you talk about it, it goes away. Question 10, what keeps you up at night? On a bad day, Instagram, and on a good day, the sheep in the field behind our house. That's <laughs> such a good English Midlands answer. Question 11, what is your number one productivity tip? Be more focused on what you want to achieve, because if you don't know what your goal is, everything looks like it's a priority. Question 12, out of all the sports you've worked with, the industry captains and researchers and academics you work with, which mentor or mentors have had the biggest influence on your life? Uh, my dad. My dad's been incredible relationship builder in his career, incredible husband, father. Yeah, that, that, those human relationships, giving more than you take is definitely inspirational. And question 13, Jeremy Snape, one of the world's leading performance psychologists and mental skills coaches. What is your definition of high performance? Uh, well, I think you've got two versions of yourself. One presses snooze on the phone, doesn't get out of bed, feels sluggish, eats too much, drinks too much, moans at everybody else and doesn't get a lot done and then regrets it. And the other person gets up early, tries to be active, tries to eat healthily, tries to prioritise, tries to get stuff done and learn to adapt and grow every day. And if I can spend 80% of my time in person number two, then I'm a high performer. 
Nice. We've covered a lot today. We've covered a lot about your background. We started with sport. We transferred to mental skills. We spoke about the teams you've worked with, multiple domain sectors you've worked with outside of of sport. We've spoken about some of your challenges, how you now use that to fuel you. I look at your Instagram account, mate. It makes me tired. The last month alone, how many times have you been into Europe and I think you are into Thailand for a day as well? Like it just a ridiculous amount of work you're doing. Is there anything I haven't covered though when I look at the broad range of work of skills? Is there a question that you would have liked me to have asked or is there a topic you would have liked to have spoken about or is there a flip? Is there a question you want to ask me? I think we've done well. I just think it's, um, you know, I'm I'm passionate about people talking about psychology and talking about performance. I know you share that same passion. And I think the more we can get people to realise that everyone, even the best performers, even the richest, you know, executives, superstars, they all have these, the self-doubt. You know, that's the thing. That's the human condition. So that's why I think high performance is self-referenced. It's not about what am I like compared to Shane Warne. You know, it's it's what am I like compared to how I was last month and the month before. And if we can zoom in on that and try and just make that better, you know, each week, we're not going to be perfect. But that's the key, really. And, And I think that takes the pressure off us. We don't have to be somebody else. We just have to keep making progress and momentum for ourselves. And when we do that, we feel proud. We feel disciplined. And we grow in our courage and our risk taking and then great things happen. And and that's a wonderful life to me, you know, being satisfied with what you've got and having something exciting to build towards. So that's that's it. Yeah. For people listening to this who want to build a wonderful or even a more wonderful life, where do they go to book you to do keynotes? Where, they, where do they go to get your business in to do consulting? Or where do they go to get your wonderful resource? It, it is, it's awesome. The way you've put it together, it's a masterclass. And it's not just mental skills, it's life skills, it's leadership, it's communication. So for people who are wanting to get more of the Snape, what's the best <laughs> way to do that? Well, the easiest way is probably uh, LinkedIn. That's probably where I'm most active with the business community. And then the podcast is Inside the Mind of Champions. So you'll hear lots of the sort of stories we've been discussing today there. So people can subscribe to that. And then Sporting Edge is the consulting business, which has got the keynote speaking and webinar type business. I do a lot of work actually in Australia with some of the businesses there. But also our digital library is the thing that's licensed globally so that this is the thousand high performance strategies that people can dial up on the phones and in their businesses. So it's a a very posh uh, motivational clip art, if you like, and that is all based around these elite performers and what they have to say to improve business. So yeah, sportingedge.com is the place for all of that. And yeah, thanks very much for the introduction and the um, the chance to speak, you know, and I wish you well with your career. We're running similar paths on the other side of the world. So thanks very much. Yeah, it's always great to have uh, a brother from another mother. We've got the similar barber, similar designer, but uh, our career paths have evolved a little bit differently. I think I jumped into the corporate earlier and then have come back to sport. You went longer with the sport and in corporate. So I do look at some parallels, but highly respect the work you do, Jeremy. And I really do thank you for the knowledge, the guidance, and also the mentoring you've given me. So big shout out to you. Brilliant. Thanks. Wizard, Jeremy Snape, reflections. What did you take out of that? Mm. Oh, man. For me, first thing I'd say, 
those stories about Warney were great. I grew up watching him play cricket, and he's obviously a legend. He's the best spin bowler to ever play the game. And, and yeah, you hear about you know all the stuff off the field that got him into a bit of trouble, but then hearing you and Jeremy talk about him. Yeah, the other side of him off the field was was really great to listen to, and yeah, I really enjoyed watching Jeremy come alive. I think we've mm. been talking quite a lot about the craft, which is one of my observations. I'll come back to, but when we spoke about Warney, it was no longer we were in the trenches talking about frameworks and constructs and teaching techniques. It was the real humanness, yeah. and that's what it. What so many people have said who were blessed to have the opportunity to work with or know Warney. He did so many things, Wizard, that people just have got no idea. And yeah, we saw the tabloids and we talk, saw all the stuff that happened in the media, but he did so much for the average man, the average woman. Like that, that story in the Indian village, oh, I can just see him going there. Yeah. And yeah, Jeremy, he got quite emotional talking about warning. So it was beautiful hearing about this special friendship. And what about how he booked him a return <laughs> ticket <laughs> two days after? That's a brilliant move. Oh, it's awesome. I don't think I've ever gone into an organisation or a sporting <laughs> team away somewhere and knowing that you've got two days to make it or basically piss off. That was, that was just a great story. I know, we might have to use that in the future sometime. <laughs> Yeah, I had two, but you've already stolen one, Wiz. It was just the shift in state talking about Warney. The other one I had was just the mastery of craft. Now, this is as a mental skills coach who studied exercise physiology and coaching psychology. Myself as well, good, not great. We've got so many parallels. But when I heard Jeremy talk about frameworks, uh, cognitive restructuring, his models around building pressure and performance, Mm. the whole person, I was sitting there just thinking, this is an absolute mastercraft for anybody who wants to learn more about mental skills. And let's just reframe that. For anyone who wants to learn more about performing at their peak, for anyone who wants to learn more about having an impact on others, I'd say listen to this interview a few times. I'm really looking forward to listening to it in a relaxed environment and just soaking in the content and the information Jeremy provided. And I started that saying, if I went back to Mrs. Singh Career Advisor, I wasn't taking the piss. Like I actually (laughs) really do look up to what Jeremy does Mm. and he's been a big influence on what I do in my career. Yeah, I can tell after the interview we were talking and, and you said he's been such a big influence on your career. I remember when you first started talking about him and I looked him up and you showed me some of his content and I was blown away. I was like, yeah, this is great. Let's, how do we do this? A brother from another mother. And when you look at his teams or the list of teams he's worked with, the South African cricket team, he played for and worked with the English cricket team, Rajasthan Royals in the Indian Premier League, England Rugby Union with Eddie Jones. Loved hearing the stories and the authenticity where he said, oh, and Jeremy, uh, the authenticity when he said, Eddie got sick of me. Like, (laughs) Americans (laughs) don't say that. Canadians don't (laughs) say that. But Jeremy does. Premier League football team, Crystal Palace, uh, Football League Managers Association, who he still works for, and F1 Racing. That's a ridiculous list of athletes and teams. Oh, that's massive. I mean, to be able to work across all those different sports, and that's not even including the corporate work that he does, that's that's incredible. And him playing in the English cricket team, he set it up so well. You know, he, he did well in that first match against Zimbabwe, and he was building it up, and he was like, yeah, I trained, and I had the music going, I was indoors, it was loud, I was getting ready, and he's talking about how he did pretty well in the bowling, and then it comes to batting, he was building up, and then he gets out there and he's ready to win the game for England and he goes to you know do a big swing and he gets Freddie Flintoff out and as you said he basically killed Bambi and lost the game. At that bit yeah I did think that oh no you've killed Bambi because Flintoff is an absolute legend mm. in English cricket he's just got such a big personality Freddie 
but to audition in front of 120,000 and have a lesson. And when I asked him on that, if you went back, would you do anything different? I was expecting him to say, yeah, I would have loved to have nailed that moment and gone on and won the game and you know, played 50 test matches. But I really, really appreciated when he said, no, that made me. Yeah. That failure lit in him a fuse that is what drives him now. That, that was a really interesting insight. Yeah, absolutely. I can't imagine dealing with that pressure and yeah, to be able to bounce back from that and, and turn that into what he does now, that's incredible. Final comment I've got is that humility. And you talk to some people and they lead with their bio. You have mm. to squeeze it out of Jeremy almost. Oh, that's right. When I worked here <laughs> and when I worked there and I know he's even having discussions at the moment. We spoke about this before we started recording. He's just been approached by a couple of big teams. We won't mention we don't have permission, but that's happening to him on a daily basis. The self-deprecating humour, the way he puts himself down, just so natural, so authentic. Really enjoyed that podcast. Oh, so British as well. So British, yeah. 